So uh, we did recently um, start a new sermon series in 1 Corinthians, uh, but today, and that'll be about a year-long sermon series, usually we wait to take a pause from series uh, until we're further along, but um, with Derek being gone and still kind of setting up and framing uh, just this year-long series, we uh, wanted to, rather than he's been steeped in uh, studying the book of 1 Corinthians, so going to let him continue to handle that series. I am going to do a standalone uh, sermon today out of Psalm 50. So I invite you to grab your Bibles and uh, begin to turn there. And as you're doing that, just invite you or ask a question of you. For those who are in Christ, who have put their trust in Jesus, who are no longer under the law, but under grace, with those who are living in that reality, what sacrifices remain for us, for us as Christians who are under this new covenant. Psalm 50, our text for today, uh, is a psalm that deals a lot with a lot of different kinds of sacrifices that are uh, pleasing to God. And it's a prophetic psalm calling God's people back to walking in a covenant relationship with him. So I want to drill down today on the idea that offering up our time and our treasure, uh, offering those up as beautiful sacrifices to God that please him. So why talk about sacrifice, and especially of the financial nature? Those are kind of taboo topics in our culture. Uh, often when you hear a pastor or preacher talking about those things, you think, oh, pastor wants a new jet. That's why he's talking about that. Well, the matter of fact is uh, that as important as heaven and hell are, Jesus actually spent a lot more time speaking about our resources, our possessions. In fact, there are over 2,300 verses in the Bible that speak about money, more than verses about faith and prayer combined. So as ones who believe that God's word is true and good and beautiful, if that's the weighting that this book gives to this topic, then this is clearly something that is important that we should pay attention to. Ultimately, what I hope that we uh, walk away with today is a, a vision and an understanding for how God has given us this gift of giving and of sacrificing back to him as a way of enjoying and living a fuller, and richer, deeper, more joy-filled life of trust in him. So with that introduction, let's dive into our text for today, which is, again, Psalm 50, and we'll start off with verses 1 through 6. Psalm 50, 1 through 6. The Mighty One, God, the Lord, he speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes, and he does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire, around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones, who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. So different psalms start off in different ways with different names or attributes of God, and they start that way in order to kind of frame the kind of posture that we should take as we 
engage with that psalm. Psalm 23, for example, the Lord is my shepherd. And so from that, we kind of have this, okay, a shepherd cares for his sheep. He provides for, he protects, and he cares for. So we are set up just by hearing that name of God in that way for just being welcomed into uh, his comforting, uh, full of provision presence. Right off the bat here in Psalm 50, though, we get a different um, framing through the names of God. Asaph doesn't use just one name, but uses three names for God as a way of emphasizing his all-encompassing sovereign authority over creation and his creatures. Those names are El, Elohim, and Yahweh. El, that is, God is the mighty one. Elohim, that is, the God who is three in one. And Yahweh, that is, the self-existent one, the I am who revealed himself to Moses in that way. It is from that authority that he summons all of creation. He's calling uh, creation into the jury box, as it were, the east and the west, the heavens and the earth, as he judge uh, begins and prepares to judge his people. This is a gird up your loins kind of moment. The judgment of God, though flowing forth from this devouring fire and this raging tempests of his holy might. It's merciful, though. It's not a final judgment. It's a warning for the nation and the people of Israel, for God's people, to consider their relationship to God, who is the I Am, the one who made them a people in their first place, when he caused them to grow and to prosper, the one who delivered them from Pharaoh out of the land of Egypt, and the one who established them in the promised land after driving out numerous nations before them. As is human nature, they've fallen into a bit of a rut. So God takes them to task as the sovereign authority. And so we read, uh, continuing on in verses 7 and following through 15. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am your God. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls? Do I drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Informing the nation of Israel, God had instituted a sacrificial system that we can read about in the books of Exodus and Leviticus. The system was a means for them to have relationship with him. He is holy and he is sinless. We're broken and sinful. Um, and so there needed to be set up a system by which relationship could be enjoyed. Israel needed a means to satisfy God's just wrath, wrath rather, over their sin. And so he gave them this sacrificial system as a way of removing their guilt and maintaining their relationship with him. This uh, system made clear two important truths. 
their great need for dealing with their sin and his great mercy for providing a means for doing so. These sacrifices were not a means for earning the right to be God's covenant people. They were actually the God-given evidence that they already were his covenant chosen people. There were many kinds of sacrifices. They fell into five basic categories. There were guilt offerings, sin offerings, uh, grain offerings, burnt offerings, and peace offerings. And I do not claim to understand all of those by any stretch. If you read the scriptures, it can seem overwhelming at times with all the different uh, requirements and so forth. So we see, though, in verse 8 here, this reference to a particular kind of sacrifice called a burnt offering. If you read in Leviticus 6 and Exodus 29, you'll see that the burnt offering was sacrificed morning and evening. The fire on the altar was never to go out, in fact. And it wasn't an offering for a specific sin. You did this, so now you need to offer that. This twice-daily burnt offering just served as a constant reminder with the smoke going up of how far short Israel was falling from a holy God. So we read, though, in verse 8, that it wasn't for their lack of failing to perform that. They were pretty punctual in that sacrifice, actually. You almost get the sense that God was just saying, enough already. Like, don't bring that to me. I, I won't accept bulls and goats. They're, you're doing this continually before me. So they were flawless with their deadlines, but they were failing with their devotion. Their hearts were not in it. They, again, misunderstood the purpose of God for these sacrifices, thinking that God had created the system maybe because he needed to be fed. They thought that this was his meal plan, his way of satiating his hunger, that he, like the other pagan gods around them, uh, needed to be sustained by his creatures. They were slogging through this routine, thinking that they were the barbecue pit masters trying to put food on the table and, and satisfy his appetite. And he sternly rebukes Israel and asks them this rhetorical question, do I, really, what you're bringing, do I eat that? The flesh of bulls, do I drink the blood of goats? And of course, the obvious answer is no, he doesn't. But God goes further and, and says, in effect, okay, for the sake of argument, let's imagine that I do eat and drink uh, bulls, flesh and blood. Would I really ask you to bring me my meals? Like me, the, the mighty one, God, the Lord. I own it all. I am the I am, the maker and the creator, the cattle on a thousand hills. That's not literally 1,000. That just is, of course, God's way of saying all, every single one. I own it all. So even if I was hungry, I wouldn't bother you. Church, we, we bring nothing to the table. God brings everything to the table. Israel had it completely backwards. God instituted sacrifices not because he needs us, but because we need him. We need his fellowship and his communion and his nearness. They thought that relationship management with God was something that could be automated with processes. There was no desire on their part to genuinely know him only to appease him and to, to kind of keep him at bay. We say an apple a day keeps the doctor at bay. Maybe they're saying was a, a bull a day keeps the, the Lord at bay. I don't know. 
their thinking was, well, we want peace with our neighboring countries. We want our, our crops to grow and, and to be flourishing. We want life to go well, so we, we better just keep this whole sacrificial system going. Of course, we're too smart to fall into that trap ourselves. We know that God isn't impressed with what we bring him. We know that we can't buy his favor with our sacrifices. In life, I think it's pretty true that there's usually two ditches to just about anything. And in this case, in our effort to avoid the ditch of legalism, I've got to do this, I've got to do that so that God will be happy, we overcorrect and we just end up driving into the other ditch of license. We often live by a false gospel of cheap grace that expects nothing of us. I know that Jesus was the perfect sacrifice on the cross in my place, in our place. So there's nothing left for me to offer. And maybe even to do so would be to, to kind of say that Jesus wasn't enough. There's certainly a ton of truth that Jesus' uh, death, and resurrection, his life, that that is all that we need for salvation and life in God. We had nothing to our salvation or our justification. Jesus, of course, amen, said from the cross, it is finished. That is, our debt is paid in full. But we do still have our own modern 21st century sacrifices to offer up to God. And I just want to demonstrate that today through Psalm 50. Because again, the sacrificial system was never primarily about cleansing and removal of sin. It could never do that. Hence, we needed Jesus. It did do that temporarily in a way, but it wasn't for that primary reason. That temporary cleansing, that uh, satisfaction of God's wrath was the means, not the end. The end goal of that sacrificial system has always been about knowing God, about enjoying God, about glorifying God. And sin puts a giant rift in that relationship between us and God. It makes knowing him and sharing friendship with him impossible. And that's our calling. It's to know him. Hosea, I, I don't know if I, almost every sermon I preach, I feel like I, I preach this, but it's one that I need to hear often. Hosea underscores that desire to know God and be known by God. In Hosea 6, verses 1 through 3, Hosea says, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live before him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is as sure as the dawn. It's light out today. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. So our calling is to know the Lord. And here's the amazing thing, church. God wants to be known by us. And not only that, but he pursues and provides so many ways for us to know him. Here's the beautiful part about Psalm 50. God says in verses 14 and 15, Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. When I first read that uh, passage and that verse, 
I thought to myself, okay, God wants us to say thank you a lot. That's appropriate. That's fitting. That's right. God has given us a lot, so we should say thank you a lot. But when you dig a little deeper, you discover that a sacrifice of thanksgiving is actually a specific kind of sacrifice. It was a kind of peace offering. That's one of the five that I mentioned earlier. But there was something unique about this one kind of those five kinds of offerings that didn't apply to the other four, to the guilt offering or the sin offering or the burn offering. The sacrifice, a peace offering, the sacrifice of thanksgiving that was offered to God whenever a person wanted to, just say thank you to express gratitude to God, maybe at the experiencing of an unexpected blessing or maybe just realizing, my goodness, I enjoy relationship with God. His favor is on my life. I want to give thanks and worship back to God. So this was not under, uh, offered in response to a person needing to be cleansed from some sin or shortcoming. So whereas with every other kind of sacrifice, the animal's body was completely burnt up. You, you were literally just turning that over, putting it on the altar. And again, this is always the sacrificial system. I don't know if you know, it strikes you, but it's quite remarkable in a setting and a time where households were not, by and large, wealthy, where, where sustenance was not just go down to QFC and grab some groceries, but you were literally putting your groceries on the altar and boom, there they go, burnt up. So it's always amazing to me how truly sacrificial that was. But anyway, with the peace offering, the sacrifice wasn't one like a burnt or a sin offering where it's consumed or sometimes offerings were allowed to go to the priest to help sustain them and their ministry. But again, the, the person who brought the offering uh, did not, you know, once that's turned over, it's gone. That wasn't the case with the peace offering, with the sacrifice of thanksgiving. The primary purpose of this sacrifice was for the worshiper to share a meal with God, with God being the one serving as the host for that meal. In ancient Jewish culture, as you quite likely know, to break bread with someone was a lot different than, hey, let's go grab lunch after church today. There's a lot more significance to it. It was an intensely personal and relational experience. It was a way of communicating between both parties, that there is a depth of harmony and shalom and wholeness to this relationship. That's why Jesus dining with tax collectors and sinners and harlots was such a big deal because of what it was communicating. It wasn't just grabbing lunch with a person. He was saying, these are my people. I'm, I'm good with them. There's, there's a relationship there. About uh, seven years or so ago, I got, had the privilege of getting to go to Chile on a short-term missions trip, and we went out into the country uh, one day to visit a small village where uh, this ministry that we were serving alongside was planning a church, and it was just incredibly humbling um, to go out to this village, to go to a household that clearly didn't have a lot in the way of financial means and resources, and we went there for lunch. And I, I had some pictures, but I didn't get them loaded. But uh, lunch had wool uh, when we arrived and was very much alive. Um, and again, as rich, you know, Western, North American Christians, United States, it just felt like, part of me just like, no, we're good. Like, you don't, just keep it. But amazingly, th this was their joy, their pleasure, their way of showing, no, there's, 
we're so glad you're here. We're glad that you're alongside um, furthering this ministry. And so, yeah, just right before us, they sacrificed that uh, lamb and uh, even collected its blood, which we got to drink and enjoy. Um, but yeah, roasted it over a spit and uh, shared that meal together. It was, again, just incredibly humbling for how generous and sacrificial uh, these folks with very little means whom we had just met um, were toward us. So that sacrifice was such a powerful relationship building piece. So God, the mighty one, the supreme deity is essentially through these peace offerings saying to his people, to you and to me, recognize the unexpected, undeserved, unmerited favor that I have shown you in making you my covenant people. And that as my people, I will meet all your needs. You, you can let go. Cattle on a thousand hills are mine. Express your trust in me through this sacrifice and let's together celebrate this relationship and my goodness. So what does that have to do with us today, several thousand years later? I assume you all left your spotless, spotless, unblemished cattle and goats at home. They aren't tied up to the back of your minivan out in the parking lot there. We don't offer up animals anymore. That was, of course, part of the ceremonial law that was done away with under the new covenant made through Jesus' blood. But we certainly do, though, under that same new covenant, have a responsibility to offer sacrifices of thanksgiving in like manner from our time and our treasure. We're invited, exhorted, commanded through the New Testament to be generous with the life and the breath and the resources that God has given us. Sadly, though, we often aren't. With regard to the financial side of that equation of time and treasure, Christians, just big church, I don't know about this body, I don't see those things, but just in general, we give 2 2.5% of our income on average. Guess what our giving was during the Great Depression? It was more around 3.3%. I mean, talk about a Great Depression, that now in our age of affluence, uh, we would actually be sacrificing less when we have actually so much more to give than our uh, forefathers and mothers in that very challenging time. But it's not just sad because of all the lost mission uh, and ministry that could go forth if we as followers of Jesus chose to sacrifice more in thanksgiving. It's also just sad because it's stupid and because of what it reflects about our hearts. We read in Matthew 6, 19 through 20, Jesus says, well-known verse, passage, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and where rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but instead lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. Notice that passage. It's easy to kind of just hear that and hear a guilt trip or whatever, but Jesus isn't just appealing to altruism there do this thing because it's the right thing to do and you should be a good person, so do it. He is speaking about treasure. He is appealing to our desire for pleasure, for joy. He has the right to command us to do whatever, but he's actually saying, hey, I made you. I know what's actually going to give you satisfaction and joy. 
And I will tell you where to find it. It ain't here. It's in the next life. To borrow an illustration and a a quote from Randy Alcorn, if you were alive at the end of the Civil War and you were on the wrong side of history and you had a significant stash of Confederate money saved up and you could kind of see where things were going and the Confederate side wasn't going to be coming out on top, again, you've got this stockpile of Confederate currency that was going to be worthless in, you know, just maybe a few more months, uh, just a short while ahead, wouldn't you be a fool to not look for every opportunity to to take that money if you could and somehow translate it and um, trade it, convert it into currency that would actually be worth something uh, going forward? You'd be a fool to not try to do that, to, to trade what was losing value to get what was of significant value. And while it's true that we cannot take a single ounce of treasure with us, again, you've probably heard it said that you don't see any U-Haul trailers behind hearses. We can actually send it on ahead with the way that we choose to give and invest in the kingdom here and now. We can't take it with us, but we can send it on ahead. And of course, it's not just about money and how we save and give or spend. It's also about our time as well. Whereas we can potentially earn more money, so that's actually in some ways an easier thing to be sacrificial with, we cannot make more time. That is a, the most finite resource. None of us can make even a single minute more of it. And so when we sacrifice our time back to God and serve others or simply just be present with them in their time of need or grief, it's another way that we express thanksgiving back to God as the one who gives us every minute of our life and breath. It's a way that we experience communion with God. He goes before us. That person who's grieving, that we say, okay, I, yeah, I want to spend an hour or two with them. He's already there. He's already alongside them, with them. We're showing up and joining with him. So we are, in that sense, getting to enjoy and experience communion with the one who is already present there. A sister in our body, our body needed help moving yesterday, and it was just so awesome to see how many folks uh, responded to Hans's just kind of broadcast appeal for, hey, just need help moving her for a couple hours. Who, who can help out? It was just a great turnout. It was done, probably one of the quicker moves I've seen in a long time. I often hope and pray in situations like that, where the neighborhood or the apartment complex gets to see such a robust turnout. We had, I don't know, five, six, seven vehicles there with people going left and right, up and down stairs, moving things in and out. I hope and pray just for even just neighbors seeing, wow, that, that is quite a turnout. It's not just that household kind of slogging through it themselves, that they would see that picture, that tangible picture of sacrificial love. And that would, God would use that to draw them Uh, to want, I want to be loved like that. I want to have a family that cares for me, that chips in, uh, that sacrifices, and that through that experience, that tangible, visible expression, that they would be themselves drawn into a local church. So what about you? Is there anywhere in your heart and mind that God is just stirring something in you this morning around sacrifice? Maybe there is an area where you have been sacrificially giving, of your time or your treasure, but your initial motive of worshiping God 
through that sacrifice has just kind of morphed into mere drudgery or, or duty. Just, you're just doing that thing because it's just what I've been doing. Maybe that drudgery around that regular service project or that coffee visit to disciple someone or that volunteering at a local school or whatever that is, maybe that drudgery isn't a sign that you need to give up sacrificing that because it's not giving me any happiness. Maybe that's just a, a call to recalibrate and to look at that thing that you have been doing and sacrificing and, and say, no, God, I'm doing this with intention. I am offering this back to you in worship in thanksgiving for who you are. I know that's true for me. There's someone I meet with regularly. I don't feel like I'm having much of an impact. And there are certainly uh, times in just recent months, weeks, where I've thought, like, I don't feel like I'm having an impact. I I don't see a lot of fruit. Like, I don't know, maybe just let this thing just kind of taper off and maybe we'll just kind of stop. And and so just in working through this this, uh, this week, God is saying, no, it's not a time to let that just die off. It's a time to recommit, to re-sacrifice, um, if you will, what um, that time is about. So to, to go into meeting with this person with intention um, and expectation for how God would show up in that sacrifice. Or maybe God is pointing out to you that you have been stingy or uh, unthankful with your time or your treasure. You've been hoarding it and as you hear his spirit nudging you to give one or both more sacrificially. If you're hearing those words this morning and, and you want to start to make some changes, I'd just suggest, first and foremost, tell someone about it. Help uh, tell them uh, that kind of what he is stirring in your heart just to help hold you accountable to the spirit's prompting. It's easy to have God speak to us on a Sunday morning and then to immediately go from here, sort of like Jesus speaks about the, the soil and um, how his word lands and then thorns and thistles of life come and crowd in and, and steal what God was speaking. So I would encourage you to say to someone, a friend, a, a spouse, even a child, hey, I want to do this more. I want to put this on the calendar. I want to put this in the budget. I want to worship God and sacrifice back to him in this way. Second, as I just alluded to, uh, actually not uh, that yet, but I would say simply start by, um, after telling someone about that, praying about it. Pray for God's grace to want to give more of your time or your treasure. And it is a grace for sure that God allows us. That's why we read in 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 2, there was this, uh, the Macedonian church, and they were not a wealthy church. They were quite the opposite. They were actually a very impoverished church. And Paul, um, speaking to the Corinthians, he's bragging on the Macedonian church. He says, I want you to know, brothers, Corinthian church, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, not like, hey, they won the lottery and they chose to carve off 10%, but in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. And Paul goes on to say that they actually begged for the opportunity to take part in the relief effort uh, for the church in Jerusalem. So notice again at the, at, at the first of that verse, though, it says that, I want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches. It is a grace of God to want to say, you know what, I realize it's not just... 5 or 10% of my time or money that is God's, it is, it is all of it. 
It's his grace that allows us to be free and thankful in our sacrificing of that. A third super practical step would be to actually just set time or money aside to uh, give. We can tell a lot. I can tell a lot when I look at how my calendar has been structured or how my bank statements look about what I actually value, where my priorities are. The things that make it on either of those, either our calendars or our budgets, those are the things that we actually value and esteem and hold important. So sacrificing our time or our money back to God won't magically happen unless we actually plan for them. We tend to spend both of those things rather thoughtlessly unless we set aside certain portions of them. Picking up our text again back in verse 16 and uh, through the end, through verse 23, we read this. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you're pleased with him and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free rein for evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done and I've been silent. So you thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and I lay the charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. The wicked referenced here, they weren't people from other nations, other pagan nations surrounding them. These were people living in Israel who assumed that they were true Israelites. They took God's apparent silence uh, and they, as a sign that he was just like them and approved of their disregard for himself and even for their neighbors. In this subset of Israelites, we see that a broken relationship with God doesn't just stay contained with God, that it actually, that mechanical and formulaic way of relating to him also led to broken relationships with others, even own mother's sons they were slandering against. So God clears up that confusion for them and he warns them of judgment if they don't change their ways. But he also offers his salvation if they'll repent, restore those broken relationships and worship God from an undivided heart. I don't know where your hearts are at in response to this message this morning, but my hope is that you'd have a mix of trepidation and excitement. Trepidation at the prospect of taking a step of faith and trusting God more and more with the time and resources of ours that ultimately aren't ours as we realize that they are in fact his. And excitement to see God be faithful and more dependable. I am a saver by nature, I feel like I've got to prepare for the future. I've got to stash it away and hoard, and you never know what's going to come. And, and it's scary and it's exciting, though, to begin to just pry those fingers off of our time and our resources and to say, I believe that in sacrificing this to you, God, you will 
actually multiply and, and pour more back on me and or most importantly, glorify your name um, out around in the world around me. The good news of the gospel is that if we put our trust in Jesus, God calls us to offer sacrifices of thanksgiving because there are no other sacrifices for sin or guilt that are needed. Jesus Christ is the spotless Lamb of God who has taken away the filth and the penalty of our sin. He's taken that on himself on the cross in our place. And in that good news of the gospel, if we trust in the Lamb of God, we need not fear that all-consuming fire and that tempest who is God, the Mighty One, the Lord, because through Christ we have been made a kingdom of priests ourselves who now have peace and have boldness to enter his presence with confidence and enjoy him. So as we respond to God and his word this morning, we'll sing songs in a moment about his goodness and his faithfulness. We'll also have the opportunity for those who trust in Christ to celebrate and remember his sacrifice on our behalf through communion. Jesus has sacrificed and shared his body. We get to come to the table and share a meal with him and celebrate that we have relationship restored. Finally, we'll get to respond by sacrificing back to God some of the gracious provision that he has poured out on us by giving back to him through our offerings, confessing as we do so that he is ready and able to meet all of our needs better than we can ourselves. Let's pray.